Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at thebuglepodcast.com. That, that bit's important. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a podcast from The Bugle. Welcome to Tiny Revolutions with me, your host, Tiff Stevenson, the podcast where we talk to comedians, writers, actors, directors, filmmakers about the art, comedy, film and TV that's been revolutionary to them. Joining me on today's show, she is a creator, writer, comedian, stand-up, performer, actress, I was going to say polymath, friend. She's all of those things. It's Roisin Connolly. Yay! Hello. <laughs> Hello. See how I struggle to go, what am I going to say first? <laughs> like, which which of the things am I going to say? Because you've done a lot. Um, but the reason I've invited you on the podcast is because you've been a tiny revolution to me. Oh. So I want to know all about your tiny revolutions. So with saying that, are you happy with all of those descriptions? Or is there anything I've missed out <laughs> when I introduced you? Uh, well, my dancing, my singing, <laughs> <laughs> my advice giving, my general, general, no, I think, you, I think you covered it pretty much there very generously. No, yeah, it's fine. All of that was good. I like creator. It makes you sound a bit godlike. What do you do? Create? Thanks. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> I did think that. I was like, well, you know, birthing universes, uh, which we will talk about. Well, that's a great way to describe it. You're right. Uh, well, you could call it that or you could call it birthing universes, whatever, whatever fits in the box. <laughs> <laughs> Go with what you're happy yeah. with. <laughs> so my first question for you is, how did you become this? Was this like design or happy accident? How did you become Roisin Conaty, creator, performer, etc., that you are today? Um, I've, I've always been interested in, 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 you know, comedy and art and music and film and, and stuff to a very obsessive degree. If I liked something, I really liked it. And I loved movies and films and books in a way, um, you know, I like escaping. I, if I can get out of my own head, I was always happier if I wasn't in my own head. And art and literature and music helps you do that and film and writing and and I wanted to be a country and western singer when I was a child. And um Love it. Yeah. And I used to write very long country and western songs. <laughs> and I didn't really understand that you could skip time in a song. Like that you could <laughs> So if I, if the song started in the morning I had to work through every beat of the day. Like I didn't really understand that you could just be like you could just say how you felt without explaining where you were. <laughs> So I remember the look on my mum's face whenever I had a new sort of um, symphony for her to get involved in. And then when I got to about 12 or 13, my cousin's boyfriend, I sang to him. And then he said, oh, yes, it's not a bad song, actually. And he said, shame you haven't got a voice. And I dramatic. I remember being like, oh, how funny. And then I left the room and dramatically leaned against the wall and slid down it. <laughs> like in a movie, like. 
my whole world collapsed. I was like, well, if I'm not going to be a country and West singer, I'm going to have to get a job. Um, then I sort of lost faith in performing and I just thought, oh, I'm going to be, that's not what I want to do. And I sort of had a disdain for it because maybe secretly I wanted to do it. And so I distrusted anyone who wanted to perform. I thought it was all a bit like, Ugh, how needy secretly wanted to do it. <laughs> and then I did theatre studies instead of performing arts. And so I didn't have to perform really, but by the odd thing. And then I did film at uni and um, I remember having this sort of, you know, it's a perfect degree and you go in and you watch movies and discuss movies and write about movies. And, and then I had this feeling, I was like, you want to perform, you want to perform, you know? And I was like, oh, oh no, I do want to perform. And I want to write and create and all of that, but I did. And that was sort of a big awakening then. And, um, but stand up, I'd always been, you know, like, obviously some people disagree, but screw them. I'd always been funny. <laughs> and <laughs> That was sort of my go-to emotion, you know, like I've always, that's just a plate that I think I, I'd always sort of loved making people laugh. It was a thing I found quite intoxicating and I love laughing, which sounds like a really simple statement, but I don't think everyone does to the point of right. not everyone really wants to laugh that much. They find it a little bit invasive if you keep trying to make them laugh. And yeah, so and then I went for a pizza and my friend Danielle said to me, you should do stand-up. It was one person. There wasn't loads of people telling me the whole time. It's one person. I love that it's one person at these key moments. One person said, you haven't got a voice. <laughs> exactly. So you were like, done. One person said you should do stand-up. Done. <laughs> I mean, that's all. I'm very susceptible to any. And then I went to downstairs at the King's Head and I put my name down and it was all very... I didn't know about the Edinburgh Festival. I didn't know about it as a career. I saw a very sort of, you know, standard, you know, ropey open night, open mic night. And I thought, well, it's lucky I'm here. It looks like this, <laughs> like I genuinely was like, well, this isn't great. I mean, they must be needing a new batch. Like, this is terrible. This is what, and then I went to, you know, when I went on the circuit and started seeing actually really brilliant, like Mickey Flanagan compared my first um, open mic at, um, Amused me, so I'm thinking, dear Lord, this man, like, how can he not be all over television? He was very soon after, but, you know, you go into a circuit where there's, like, an amazing amount of talent just because you haven't seen them on TV. I was like, <gasps> but at the beginning, what got me through was just seeing an open mic night, never been to one before, I'm thinking, well, yes, I can see why I'm here. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Any of the early stuff that you watched in terms of films, because you said as a kid you if you were obsessed with something so it's like country music mm. was there any film or any stand-ups or anything like that who before you did stand-up sort of inspired that journey then that journey via film into stand-up there's so much I think and it's so interesting because there's sort of so much discourse around influences that sometimes I had to sort of almost go back and, and really work out what were my influences rather than the ones sort of that you we discuss quite a lot and I definitely think, like, one that it took me a while to sort of recognise, but if I... Blossom, the TV show Blossom. Right, right. That had a huge, huge impact on, on me and how I saw myself and how I saw being funny. And and I don't ever acknowledge it because it's not a show that gets discussed like that, maybe, you know, in that way in this country. But it was on at 6pm on a Friday... And the opening episode, the pilot, maybe the opening scene, it's her sort of holding a hairbrush, talking to a video camera as if she's doing sort of the opening monologue on a sort of night show, a Saturday night show or an evening show. And it was written like those monologues, like a full of jokes and gags. And it just, so looking back, it looked like it was stand up, you know, watching. And this show was like, you know, 
her brother's an alcoholic, her mum doesn't love her. And it just, it was really funny. She had a stupid brother like Joey, who was very similar to the Joey character that ended up in Friends. And yeah, it was, I really loved it. And I loved the the sort of storylines within it that it did try and deal with issues, quote, quote, you know, and, and it was funny. And I just hadn't seen that a girl could be the centre of a story that her wants and needs and she could be funny and she could be the love interest. And yeah, it it really blew my mind. I think, and as, you know, it took me a long time to sort of, but when I see the show, I get such a physical reaction to like <gasps> Blossom, you know, like I identified with her so much. I do remember fancying the brother, but actually now you've mentioned it, that's probably the early, maybe the first example of a himbo. Yeah. That we saw, so almost subvert in that, you know. Totally. It was, like he, the good looking guy's the idiot. <laughs> and just the older brother was this alcoholic who'd got out of rehab and, and, you know, just the fact she had this space. It was just very, it was complex and it was on at 6pm on at Channel 4 and, and she was funny and she was witty and she had the lines and she was she was going through all the stuff I was going through at the time, you know, being, being a teenager and, you know, it was really, and it was really great writing, really great. It's, it holds up as well. I watched it recently. And I was like, this show holds up, you know? And, um, yeah, so that was one of the shows, the golden girls. I loved only fools and horses. So many of those sort of shows, but like, I, 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 they get discussed, I guess, but blossom is one that I, I feel like never, I don't feel like gets its, sort of you know credit and I think my generation I think you know we used to be like run home to watch it at six o'clock on a Friday you know it was yeah and look at like how six was like styling her hair and doing her makeup as well I remember yeah that. they're all amazing that's such a great answer and there's probably film and magazines and smash oh, film, hits and all, all the, of that <laughs> all of it you know I, I watched and I was just obsessed with it all, you know, I used to buy the National Enquirer when I was like nine. Um, <laughs> I love this. This is hysterical to me. Like at nine years old. Nine going. or ten, whenever it came out. So, because I'd, I'd get through magazines so fast. So, like, I'd get through Smash It, go through Just, you know, whatever I could get my hands on. And then I got to like, ten, maybe I was like ten or eleven. Less nine's probably exaggerating. But like, and I just see these, and I didn't know who any of these Americans were, but I just liked the, the print in the world. And I was sort of obsessed with that sort of you know the movies and glamour and but I used to watch a lot of hammer horrors that was the thing I was really into so horror film uh, horrors that would be a thing my dad would watch same thing with Vincent Price all of those all of those but movie white you know all this there's great amazing movies you know still magnolias all the, anything with a lot you know um, postcards from the edge just as I'm getting older female-led stuff always obviously sometimes resonated with me a bit more but only fools and horses you know I think sometimes the art you know, it. you kind of remember whether how much you liked it or whether it was the time and who you watched it with, you know, and Only Fools and Horses was such a a joyous moment in our home when it was on, like everyone was up for it, you know, so my mum and my dad, everything sort of lift, the mood lifted and I saw the power of comedy when those shows that everyone agreed on, which I know a lot of people hate a lot of those shows, but they do, they're powerful forces in homes when everyone goes... Oh, they were big in our house yeah. as well. It was a treat to sit down and watch falls yeah. and also i do think there was something in the hopefulness of the characters oh yeah you were like what are they going to do now and you really wanted it to work out for them but at the same time you know like what was del boy going to do next like what schemes he getting up to now you know and i think as well you know the britishness of it i think recognizing you know that sort of aspect i suppose of because there was a lot of american sitcoms as well and they always felt slightly more aspirational to me with high school and everything else 
but there was something just so deeply like you felt like you knew the people i mean 100 percent. it was it was so it was so working class it was so generational you know to see and they dealt with it you know this sort of you know you've got the old guy and then the new guy you know rodney's trying to you know get to college and you know, sort of how even within a family, within a generation, you know, people's values change. You know, Rodney wanted to not be this dodgy, you know, but there was so much joy. I felt like it just, it really tried to, it felt like it was a very joyous show, you know, and it and it really knitted its plots together very well. And, and I feel like, you, like exactly what you said, you really rooted for the characters. And when Rodney felt shame or hard done by, you bought it and you knew Rod, Rodney's not going to like this, you know, like, and, you know, and you knew Del Boy never had a good idea in his life you know and uh but you know he loved everyone and you sort of (laughs) and that dynamic as well Mm. with the older brother feeling like i gotta take care of my younger brother totally and the judgment that you can have when you're the the judgment of how you judge the people the caregivers when they've had to make these difficult decisions and you know get by and you know and, and you know you can be a bit pure when you're like that's not how you should do it and you go well you're not the one who had to earn the money you know sort of so but I just loved it. I loved that show. And I love that, you know, those shows that sort of changed the moods in homes, especially, you know, that didn't show the world completely different to the one you knew, you know, but they still brought joy. It wasn't like, oh, look, you know, we're in Dallas or, you know, which I loved as well and stuff. But yeah, Only Fools and Horses was a sort of one. And you know what I really loved as well? Only uh, Birds of a Feather. Oh, yeah, yeah. What will I do when you are far away? I've watched that with my mum. Yeah. yeah, we loved that. I really love that. Cheers. And uh, just, I watch, you know, get into sort of all kinds of, you know, all the big ones I'd love, you know. Cell Block H was a big one, I think, for me. Um, I still pretend, so it was beyond Thursday night at like half 11 at night. And every Thursday night, like quarter past 11, I'd get up and I'd be like, I'm hungry. Because <laughs> I knew my mum would be watching. And then I'd just take ages to eat a bowl of cereal so I could see what was happening in prison cell block age. <laughs> Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Earliest political memory, was it like seeing Thatcher on the TV or...? I think it was probably Margaret Thatcher and my parents are Irish and I was, you know, an Irish name. So I remember it being around that sort of conversation. Yeah, it was the that it was Thatcher and, and maybe an election, like Neil Kennett. I remember that sort of discussion and taking away the milk at, for schools. It's sort of a blur into one. So I don't have a, you know, like my it gets clearer as I get older, but I remember sort of hearing anti-Thatcher, anti-conservative sort of stuff in every sort of 
area I went to, I guess. Yeah, that's my sort of earliest memory. Yeah, like my, mine, I think, was Thatcher and remembering bit, having milk at school and then not having milk at school. And then my mum being angry, but not really understanding what had happened. Yeah, that's exactly sort of what I remember. I remember having milk and then not having milk. And then, but just sort of hearing, my mum's called Margaret, being like, are you Margaret Thatcher? Not really understanding that two people could be called Margaret. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, just not understanding that two people could have the same name. Uh, so I was very young. But yeah, but I guess, you know, it's sort of woman that you know everyone seems to dislike and you just remember I just remember her image like the blue suit and all of that and just sort of that you know when you don't have you can't comprehend what you know the details of politics of that age you're just watching a woman who just seems to be smiling and speaking that everyone's like, like <laughs> yeah. what's you going know, on like, yeah you know you mentioned Irishness like do you say like you're London Irish do you consider that to be part of your or is that a weird oh yeah I think you know my, I've got an Irish identity like my parents are Irish I was born here but you know I spent a lot of my time in Ireland and you know that's sort of so I consider myself Irish I'm a Londoner you know like definitely um but yeah it does you know my, my parents were immigrants so like even though it doesn't seem it's not that far but they were from a very different culture at the time you know cultures change and you know the Irish culture and English culture you know to the outsider now seem very similar and they are a lot more similar than they were and um but it was a you know I felt like I had parents who weren't from here you know like and especially in the 80s and the 90s it felt a bit you know with all the you know, the political situation, the terrorism and felt very different and my name, you know. So um, I've got a name that sort of announces my, it's quite a strange thing because, you know, it announces your, that you're Irish, you know, before right, you say right. anything. So, um, yeah, so I feel very connected to that culture. You know, I feel very connected to the English culture, but I do feel, you know, that's because my, you, where my parents are from, I feel like Ireland is always, when I get there, I feel like, oh, home is that sort of, uh, but I'm very much a Londoner. And if, I think any time you have two cultures, I do think, you know, it affects the work because there's two different value sets at different times, right. you know. My mum's from this tiny village in Ireland. I mean, they, their song is There's Only One Street in Drum Colourher. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I think that's, i tell you what's affected my, I would say, outlook or art is that, that I grew up on a council estate. It's very colourful and loud and all different cultures and all different smells and noise and, you know, all of it. Every bit of life in, you know very tightly packed in and you live there and then you go to Ireland for like three months and you're just in a field and it's like no one's trying to entertain you no one gives a shit like what what you do and not in an unloving way in a kind of like you know go and go and make you know make entertainment for yourself what you're gonna do and and I think that sort of is my personality now I'm either all like and then I need two months in a field you know like I need that's the only way I can exist. You need solitary, yeah, solitary, like complete extremes. You know, that's interesting because I do think Irishness runs through. But obviously, because there's that great tradition, I suppose, of Irish storytelling and comedy and everything else, and that Irish people can spin a yarn. For me, whenever I hear an Irish name in comedy, I'm like, it's going to be quality. Like, I, you know, I always know that it's going to be. I'm in for. They're very funny and they are good. You know, I I don't have you know. Uh, especially you know Irish born people they're very funny they like this is you know gross generalizations of course they're some bores but I'd say on the whole they're very funny very charming and they can hold a tail and I think you know there's some 
I have my own theories that are probably absolute bullshit, but I think they're big families. You had to earn your place to speak, you know, kind of someone's going to talk, so you better be interesting, you know, sort of. And obviously, because English isn't their first language, they've created with it. The really great Irish comedians and writers, I think they, they use the language really beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not including myself in that, by the way, so I'm not a lunatic. I'm literally talking about people. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would include you. But I know what you mean. It's the difference. I, I tell you what, as well, like someone like Tommy Tiernan, seeing him in the UK and then seeing him in front of an Irish audience, mm. it's just like there's a, um, it's almost like a tissue. It's like connective tissue. Yeah. And he's brilliant here. And like he's done Old Rope and he's been brilliant here. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, it's like blood flowing. Like it's such a visceral, like. Well, it feels in Ireland he's almost a valve for the country itself you know at periods of time like you know Tommy speaks in the countryside you know it's felt like that at a time I think he's been such a you know like Dave Allen and people like that who become sort of you know not always but you know they become sort of the mouthpiece a bit of the the person in the country you know who's like this is what we think or feel or and comedy does that it provides that sort of you know, like someone said, or, you know, I feel seen or whatever. And Tommy, you know, he's magnificent at what he does. And, um, yeah, he's, he's tremendous. Dylan Moran, there's so many, you know, uh, amazing Irish comedians. Ashley. Do you think mm. Ireland respects comedy more than somewhere like England? I feel like in Ireland, there's an inherent, it's so much part of daily life. Like I've seen newspapers quote The Simpsons and Tommy Tiernan in the same news story. So I feel like there's a respect for it as an art form that I maybe think England doesn't have as much. I could be wrong. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Honestly, I feel like, you know, obviously Edinburgh's in the UK, Edinburgh Festival. So I think England, the UK has got a huge respect. I think in a way, like for comedy, I do think there is a you know, you know, Oxford and Cambridge, the fact that so many of our comedians are from the, you know, the elite uh, sort of parts of society show that it's not a thing that, you know, is where you, you know, it's seen as something worth doing. Right. Um, I think Ireland, I think, I would definitely say in social situations, like it's seen as, you know, to be funny and to, to laugh and to try and be funny and to try and, and participate is seen as, very good manners and you need to be able to to do that i would say this is again you know i think it's seen as good form you know that you you should be able to make light of yourself and not be too big and not you know like it's right. not seen as i don't think seriousness even though they are a very serious people but i think seriousness isn't seen as as noble you know there's a kind of like we don't you know we're going to we we'll laugh about it, whatever it is, good or bad. It's seen as, you know, I've got to Ireland, I get into a taxi and by the time I get to the gig, I'm like, what am I doing here? This taxi driver's funnier than me. Everyone's funnier <laughs> than me. Like, why am I in this country? <laughs> like, why? Like, I was like, why have they booked me? Let's get into Game Face because obviously having been in it as well, but I have lots of thoughts about this. If there's a, someone listening who hasn't seen Game Face, go watch Game Face. One of the beautiful things about it is it deals with lots of really important stuff, but with such a lightness of touch oh, that, it's, that it's, it's really, really beautifully done. So first question, I guess, is what was your aim when you started writing and making the show? Like, did you have a mission statement behind it? Basically, no, the mission statement, I guess I wanted to write a show about a woman who I wanted to like, she's 
at that point in her life where things haven't worked out, her dreams haven't materialised, her relationship that she's put 12 years in is gone. And that bit where, you know, you're in your 30s and this it hasn't landed and, and you sort of are where you were maybe or worse than you were when you were 21, you know, but with more baggage and a bit, a bit less faith that things are going to work out. So that was sort of it. I wanted it to be funny, obviously, because it was a sitcom comedy drama. And then I think <laughs> you get the you start trying to write and, you know, it's hard and you can get caught up in how people are going to respond to your show and, and those thoughts are never useful. To sort of help me create it, I guess, I wanted it to be a show that sort of had some joy in it, that brought joy and people were able to, and, and connection, that feeling, because that's sort of the stuff I love. So I don't want to sound too pretentious, but the stuff I watch again and again is like stuff that I feel connected to and um, characters I feel connected to and that I feel nourishes me. And I wanted to do that, whether I achieve that or not, I wanted it to be quite nourishing as opposed to depleting. Oh, you did. Oh. You so did. You so achieved something that was, I think one of the reasons we love Marcella is because we are Marcella or we all, you know, she's someone who's funny and smart, but she's an optimist as well. She's in a place, but she hasn't given up and she's still, but she's also a realist. She's not like out of her mind because she's talented. So of course she can get things and she's a realist in that there's that horrible moment where she, you know, they're splitting the bill, for example, one of the many moments where I think people were like, oh, I'm just trying to achieve my dreams and I want everyone to think I'm great. And then I turn up at this thing and now I've got this moment where I'm just hoping that no one yeah. realises how like thin the ice is that I'm standing on. That's exactly it. Yeah, that thing of, you know, and I think that's why it's called game face. You have to put that face onto the world. And I think a lot of, you know, we all do it, you know, wherever it is when there's a bit, when you are seen as a proper adult and you should have your th stuff together. And these are kind of broad tropes, but then the details of what makes, I think, the difference between a good version and a bad version of, because, of, you know, there's only so many stories in a human life, which is, are you where you want to be? Are you happy? You know, can you change? Do you believe you can change? And they're the sort of questions I think Marcella is in that moment where she can go either way. Like, is she going to lose faith that she is the creator of her own destiny and she can, you know, that she can change and she can make better decisions for herself? Or is she going to lean into, you know, I'm not, this is it for her, you know, and just be a, a receiving, in receiving mode of um, of life, you know, where you're just like, oh, I'll just do whatever falls into my lap. So it's just, it's quite interesting because, that's I think any wherever you are in your life you can sort of relate to that you're just like oh you know how how you doing <laughs> you know like how you doing right now wherever you are you know is it what you want to be doing you know have you tried your hardest that sort of stuff how did you approach the heavier topics in the show because like I say they're they're done with a real lightness of touch you know there's obviously stuff about debt there's stuff about addiction there's stuff about depression you know did you kind of, did you know that you always wanted to talk about those or did they just come up in the writing of, you know? I knew that I wanted to show that, you know, that some of her failure or limitations weren't all her, you know, that life, you know, it wasn't just this woman, you know, bundling around, getting it wrong, you know, that, you know, debt's a real thing and having to take two jobs or three jobs are real things. And, and so I wanted to show that debt for me was a real, it's, it's a real life thing. People experience, you know, and it's very easy to say, follow your dreams, follow your dreams. And you go, I'm 10 grand and 20 grand in debt. Like it's impossible. What you're saying to me is impossible. And so I wanted that heaviness to be, and a past, um, 
and it was something I was in, in debt in my 20s and I remember that feeling that crushing feeling of you know I have to not fo- you know who am I to follow my dreams now when I'm in debt you know and addiction is something you know I'm familiar with and and I think every family has people with addiction in them and so I just wanted to sort of you know, in a funny and lightweight, because it was never meant to be a gritty, it's not a gritty drama, you know, but I wanted to still feel like just because it's a comedy doesn't mean it can't deal with those topics. You can still have those characters in, because they're in our lives, whether we're in good moods or bad moods, you know, we're still in debt on a good day or a bad day. You've still got someone in your family with addiction on a good day or a bad day or, you know, and uh, yeah, so I wanted the world to feel as close to real, you know, like real people uh, with real problems and and real family issues and money problems and, romantic relationship problems you know that that any one life can have that it's not just someone who isn't very good at managing her life that's a beautiful answer thank you Um, I will say I do think as well that it feels like less of a burden when you see someone on screen dealing with those things that you've dealt with yourself that you're like I've been that person and it feels like something's lifted from you to be able to see that experience sort of come back at you and be able to handle it in a way that you know that's that's why you're rooting for Marcella, ultimately. Aww. There's a couple of interesting things, I think, that you did in the show that I want to talk about before we move on. Women existing as their own storylines. So I'd love to talk about the mum speech with the conch, because <laughs> that's such a great moment in Game Face. But I'll let you set it up as to sort of what it is. There's an intervention for Marcella's brother, Billy, um, who's on cocaine, and... Um, and it's sort of a very badly arranged. Billy's had to arrange his own intervention, basically, because <laughs> Marcella's family are sort of chaotic and uh, not very functional, like like a lot of families. And Marcella's got a sort of competitive relationship with her brother with for her mum's attention, you know, and he's like the golden boy, and Marcella always feels a little bit that, you know, Billy can never get told off without her getting dragged into it. And there's sort of a bit where, you know, everyone's sort of saying their bit to Billy and the mum has to start saying the thing, you know, her how she feels and everyone's a bit dismissive and they're like, all right, mum, you know, we get it. Like, and she gives a speech and it's Pauline McGlynn. So she's, she's amazing. She's a brilliant actress, brilliant comedy actress. You know, you learn so much work with someone like her. She's incredible. Um, but it's quite dramatic. It's not meant to be that funny, this bit. And um, yeah, and she just has a bit about that she doesn't want to be the beast story in her own life and sort of that. Yeah, it was nice. It wasn't too long. It wasn't too... I didn't feel... I felt like we earned a bit from her, you know, for her to sort of have that because she's playing, like, the mum, the loving mum, how we see... Because it's very much Marcella's version of her mum, this loving mum, you know, whose needs... who The character centres around Marcella's needs, you know, and then you just get a flash of, oh, my God, mums are people too. <laughs> yeah. And it, and, and it, it made you realise how rarely it happens. And it's such a great speech that you wrote and she performed... Um, and did you get a lot of people coming back to you? Because I'm sure I saw tweets, because I think I'm in that episode when that went out going, the mum speech, you know. Yeah, I think a lot of people really landed with, and I think a lot of people, you know, it's, you know, we're all self-absorbed, you know, as a, as people, and I speak for myself mainly, but, you know, and our parents, we can be in so much judgment, like Marcella is, you know, it's about, you know, I grew up in a chaotic house and all of that, there's a lot of judgment, but they, in this series, the mum, you know, she's there for it, she's got one child who's you know on cocaine the other child who's sort of very self-absorbed because she has got this career and she's feeling very sorry for herself because her relationship and you know sort of not really functioning and wants to be like a an actress a successful actress and I think this mum just wants her kids to be okay and she's just like saying I just want 
I just want you to be okay, for God's sake. <laughs> like, I put all these years in. Yeah. Can you not just be okay? You don't have to be... Your life doesn't have to be amazing. You know, like, why can't okay suit you? It suited me, sort of thing, you know? And where can she exist in the spaces of the hugeness of your problems and Billy's problems? Marcella and Billy's, totally. like, where am I yeah. in, in amongst all of this? And also, with my character, with Tanya, you did a really lovely... Who you play amazingly, by the way. Thanks. So if we're doing I'll it, take a phrase. Absolutely incredible. Incredible work. But... I do all of the kind of uh, things that you sort of subverted a trope, really, didn't you, with Tanya? Yeah, well, I wanted it to be, you know, so you've got this ex, you know, Marcella's got an ex and then he's got a new love. And the, the obvious thing is to sort of be this like, you know, absolute opposite to Marcella kind of 2D character so that the audience know who they're rooting for, that Marcella's, you know, the winner in the in the love off, so to speak, you know, but I just thought, it's you know, life's complicated. And I, I really do believe fundamentally that people are all innately good and everyone's the lead in their own story, obviously. And so I thought it'd be interesting to do it where he hasn't gone for someone who's, you know, people always think we look alike, physically dissimilar to Marcella. But more than that, sort of the chaoticness Marcella has sort of, you know, that seems to follow her a bit, follows Tanya. You know, she gets, <laughs> I don't want to give anything away, but there's... You know, when we first meet her, she's the same, got the same energy as Marcella. The sort of bundle of, you know, stuff happens to her. She's like bang into the room and and she's sweet and she's kind and she's vulnerable and she's funny. And that you can see when, when you know, there's a bit where she does, you know, she's buying condoms and she's funny to Marcella. And Marcella just looks even more, you know, like I can't handle <laughs> That's that. That's my well. thing. That's my yeah. thing. You can't have that. Yeah. I wanted the audience to feel conflicted. You know, you want them to feel like, you know, Marcella, you know, the second series, she does act badly. You know, like the end result is someone, you know, there is a victim and there is a, and I think Tanya is um, a really good character. And, and uh, I really liked the way you performed her and brought her to life and just sort of made made it a bit more complex it was just it makes it complicated when the audience don't know what they're meant to think about they're like well because they like her and that's really important because Marcella's a likable character not all the time but you know she's a lead in the show so you sort of but then you bring someone in they go but I like her like oh and then you go yeah so now it's just the situation you get to watch sort of characters not behave that well because that's life sometimes yeah <laughs> and it feels very real because that and I think everyone had everyone had great story and funny moments and stuff as well you're very generous with doling out you're very kind funny. you're brilliant you're <laughs> brilliant and you're an absolute incredible actress and honestly I, this is you know this is a bit for the listener but I don't care I'm going to say she came on set and you're just like there's one scene in the series in the first episode of series two and you're just like bang straight like first take I was like what are you made of (laughs) how are you able to do that in like the first take but yeah incredible what are your personal tiny revolutions so things that you've discovered or processes that make a huge difference to your life or creativity because we always talk about, I suppose people always talk about what their morning routines are. I often think about this within creativity, that you go, Hemingway went for a walk in the morning or Trumbo wrote in the bath. What are your own revolutions where you were like, oh, that's a light bulb moment that actually approaching the work or approaching doing stuff in this way is helpful? Well, I'd say the most important was getting sober. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, that's pretty huge. Sobriety was pretty... Um... That was a big old revolution for me. Um, yeah, that was massive because it just meant, firstly, you know, morning. I got mornings back, number one. Um, and you just so, you have so, your mood is 
you know, if you're not hungover or whatever, your mood is much more level for longer periods of time and you're feeling, you have access to feelings and it was huge. I think, you know, being present is, um, is so important as, you know, artists and, you know, as I know, comedians, writers, creators, all of the things to be present because that's where all the work happens. But our, for me personally, what got me into wanting to do all these things was to be not present. So I'd go into my dreamland in my head and create worlds and universes and, and, you know, imagined things, you know, and, and so that balance was never there for me. And I think getting sober sort of sent me back to almost being a child, that pure presence, uh, not all the time, but I can get pure presence and, and that creativity that you get when you're really present, you know, when you're sort of like, you're not trying to change, you're not trying to get out of your head, you're trying to stay in there and have a little root round and it's okay. Um, that sounds so waffly, but just in terms of... No, it's, no, I think I, it makes total sense. It's, it's, you start the day in a neutral space, in a more neutral, emotional, and that you have actually, you're not letting your emotions run you, you're sort of, you're steering the car a little bit more rather than someone else's driving. Yeah, and you can, it made me feel sort of like a teenager again, like sort of, because, you know, you're not drinking wine, or you're not drinking, you're not hungover or whatever. And so in terms of my work, I don't know, it made me feel that sort of butterfly. Even now I can sort of tune into it, that butterfly feeling like of creativity, of going into a space of presence. I think it's just presence, it's pure presence that everything that you create happens in pure presence. For me, when I am at the end result, trying to constantly see the end result without doing the process, I'm ruining it. I can't, because I'm trying to dictate how it should come out and how it should end. Or, yeah, it just, it has to be present. It has to be okay with it not being great yet. And that's okay. You know, working through, so presence for me is such a huge, so meditation is so, sobriety is um, my most recent a huge revolution there's a a more sort of a prosaic rudimentary is uh, the pomodoro technique which right. i'll tell you about yes, which is yeah. writing for 25 minutes five minute break writing for 25 minutes five minute break and that seems to <laughs> like the amount of books and workshops and you know kind of cottages i've rented running off trying to finish and tricking our brains into the idea that we're yeah not working <laughs> trying to tr- totally and then this 25 minute like with this noise going t- and you can't do anything else. You can't go to the fridge. You can't sort of answer an email. And just doing it, I get loads done. It, whatever that does, the period of time, 25 minutes, I can do the piece of work that I don't want to do. I can work through a script knot. I can work through the voice in my head saying, you're not going to be able to fix this. It's not any good. I can do that for 25 minutes. And I and only because I know the 25 minutes is going to end. And so it's a very, like I say, rudimentary sort of, but it really... But it's little... overriding all your own processes, right yes like yes 100 to get to a point of not automatic but almost like was it the basal ganglia or whatever there's that bit of your brain that goes on autopilot or is that does stuff without thinking about it and it's why when you're driving or walking sometimes you come up with loads of ideas and stuff and so and I think that's part of maybe why we feel like sitting down and doing a thing is like mad to us because you're like well I can't think of anything if I'm just sitting down if I'm doing something else like but actually totally. sometimes you do just have to I, I I've used the Pomodoro a few times I should use them more but they are really really good and also 25 minutes is such a good amount of time because half an hour sounds long 
Yes. So keeping it in under the half hour gives you, but also going, I could knock, there's no reason that I can't knock out four or five of these in a day. It just frees my day up. I mean, it frees my brain before the committee and my little brain get to run down and tell me like I'm, I'm, I'm dog shit and I don't do good work. Yeah. I've already done my 25 minutes and then yes. they're just waking up like, whoa, 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 what? She's got, she got something <laughs> done in that 25 minutes. But I didn't get down to whisper in her ear that she's rubbish. <laughs> you know, how did she do that? You know, so it's that tricking. Like I remember once I was going to the theatre and it's just when I sort of had a real revelation. I was going to the theatre and because um, I go to the theatre just, you know, and I was going to the theatre and it was like four o'clock and I was like, well, I should start getting ready soon. I was like, you can get a Pomodoro round of, you know, four, 25 minutes. And I thought, well, no, that's mad. I'm going, but I was like, yeah, you can, you can, get, you can do that. You can, I literally, and it felt like so doable but not how I write. Normally, like, you know, I, I'm up all night. I'm up all day staring <laughs> at the screen, you know, kind of going through this, you know, maudlin, like, oh, I can't do it. <laughs> sort of. And then I just did this and I just thought, well, I'll just do two pages. Whatever I get done in the, you know, the two lots of the Pomodoro. And the next day I, I sort of checked it, what I'd written. I was like, this was, that was so useful that I was able, in that two hours, I would have sat there for a whole day, you know, but I was able to be like, on the days where it's just not there, you go, I'm going to get up at nine o'clock, I'm going to do one problem, and that's it, that's the day done. And if my muse doesn't show then, and it's like a trick, but, you know, then but if it does, then you go, well, I might do another one at two o'clock. I'll see how I feel too, you know, kind of. And I would literally trick my brain into being like, so that I didn't wake up the heavy hitters <laughs> of the heavy hitter, you know, Elf in the committee down. who were like <laughs> the big ones who come down and like run down the stairs the second they think you're doing big jobs. <laughs> like, you doing big jobs? <laughs> down the stairs. Like, hello, shithead. You can't write shit. Like, it was like, they don't wake up for some reason. The Pomodoro gets in under them. You know, taking the pressure off, like enjoying writing. I don't, you know, there's that famous quote, I don't know who it, who said it, but I don't enjoy writing. I enjoy having written. And that's it. When I took that off, I was like, yeah, like there's resistance. This isn't, there's never going to be this perfect time. I always remember I sort of always be obsessed with Maine. You've heard me on about this. Yeah. Like, and anytime I've got a deadline, I think oh, I need to go to Maine and buy white linen. What's Stephen and King like, done to you? <laughs> yeah. But like, that's where I think writing happens. Like writers wear white linen. They, li- they write on a beach and they do have a coffee and they sort of have a dog. They're not smoking 20 fags, phoning their agent saying, give, give them the money back. Do you know what I mean? Like sort of... <laughs> Which I don't do anymore because I don't smoke cigarettes. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that sort of idea, because I felt like writing scripted and, you know, it, it, it can be a lonely and, and it could be, and you have to just work out that it's not a nice feeling in the process. And that's fine. It's just okay to, it can be, it can bring up a lot of your wounds of not being good enough. And that's okay. And you have to just work out tools to work around that. So, you know, but that's a great thing. What's that phrase? Someone said, like, whatever stops you doing the work is the work. Right. So you get to learn sort of a lot about yourself when you try and when you try and do something, you get to learn where your resistance is and how you really feel about your own abilities. (laughs) For me, deadlines are a big thing as well. It was just that I had an appointment the other day and because I had an appointment... I'd got up, I'd exercised and I'd done all of my emails before I went out because I knew if I didn't do them all before I went to the appointment, I'd just come back and the day's gone. Yeah. Like, but I was like, oh, that deadline, I respond quite well (laughs) to deadline. I think that I don't because I will fight it and I'll try and extend it and I'll do all of the things, but also just kind of knowing that there's an expectation of being somewhere or doing a thing or putting a thing. Totally. 
they're part it's part of the creative process i wish it wasn't for me but you know nothing like me getting on a train to edinburgh sets my old when i've got <laughs> 35 minutes of a show written sets my old uh, brain on you know kind of and even now like I, I just try not to be in so much judgment of it all the time because i always think there's i always think there's other people and they've got a better process than me and they're able to do it this way and that way and mine is the deadline as annoying as it is, has become part of the creative process. Whatever it does, it sets off a lot of fear, a lot of judgment, a lot of, I'm not going to be able to do this, I don't want to do this. Uh, it just is part of it. It's intertwined with it, you know, with the end result being done, being finished. And yet, because without without the deadline, it, nothing's getting done. I'm, but I'm, I'm living in like perfect, in my head, I'm living with my perfect version of the work that I have never written. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's lovely that oh yeah this, oh, this lovely bit of work sitting up there in my brain oh it's lovely yeah I've never had to work through it so deadlines are part of the creative process I would say and I feel like these things that we can see as threats and as things that for me I look at deadline like why do you want to hurt me that <laughs> you know <laughs> what did I ever do to you deadline you know like, sort of but when you are able to use it as a tool, as which I now go, oh yeah, the deadline's coming as it approaches, and then I'll have the night, dark night of the soul around the work, which is normally I try and change everything about it and set it in Peru, <laughs> and then I'm like, you know, and then Just you, you and Paddington Bear, pretty much. All the I'm, like, I'm like, why, why have I written this show about this? I should have written a period drama set in Spain, <laughs> like, I was, like, you know, like there's tools in even in things that are frightening you know they're things that like feel like they're impending well they feel like getting close to a job and none of us wanted to do a job <laughs> like yes. so anything yes. that smells like I was like, does that smell like that smells like that smells like a job no no no, I yes. don't do job I'm my own yeah I'm my own 100%. person um but like with Edinburgh that deadline of just having like you were saying the fear on the train I'm still now a person and I guess we can sort of end with talking about this and maybe talking about great stuff maybe that you've seen in Edinburgh. But I can't go past Edinburgh on the train without feeling nauseous. That's because you're always drunk up there. <laughs> Probably, <laughs> the last yeah. time you've gone past Edinburgh, not drunk. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. I'm being facetious. I know what you mean. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's like, a, you know, one of my first gigs was the amused moves and she used to play Hills Jago used to play the song that she used to bring everyone on was can you hear it pumping on your stereo can you hear it and honestly I could be in a bar in Greece or a restaurant in Greece that song comes on my whole body I act like I'm about to flip the table I'm just like, my whole body just seizes up with like and all I all my brain keeps shouting is something's about to happen and that takes me ages to work out oh no this is what used to happen and you see because you were going on stage so I think Edinburgh always has that now you know we have that kind of supergrass have programmed you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> deep programming that's it how important do you think it is in the bigger the wider talking about art and talking about revolutions because you know i remember 2010 being this bit because i was up at the fringe as well this like huge moment when you won newcomer like how important do you think it is in the grand scheme of things as to have a career doing what we do and what the future of that might be? I mean, for me, that was a huge moment because I'd been gigging for a while and it was my first solo show. And it was, it was, a, yeah, it was a very, it's 10 years ago now, 11 years this year. So it was a huge moment, you know, and it's a prestigious award and all of that stuff. And I still think, you know, awards, you know, 
shiny objects and accolades are nice you know they make you feel you're on the right track you know be it praise be it an award be it but for me that did change my trajectory because I was able to get you know go full-time effectively in comedy and not not sort of have to temp and stuff and now I think Edinburgh is still that I, I, you know there's no festival in the world like Edinburgh I think just because you know you could have an amazing show I've seen amazing shows but I've already saw four shows before already seen four shows before <laughs> it so I'm going in I'm just I'm not a great audience <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. I'm just tight I'm full up I'm full up you know so it's just like having a steak after you know a curry you just you're like none <laughs> they're both fine but I'm just full on so it makes you know you see amazing shows up there and um and because there's so much competition up there right it's very nature it's like everyone gets better for it even if their mental health really struggles because it is a very hard place to go up when you know you might have sold for five tickets and it costs a lot of money and now this is now there's a free fringe it doesn't as much but when we first were going up there you know it was always you had a debt to pay at the end and if you're working class explaining to your your working class mother why you're you sold out every night for five grand in debt they're just like I don't understand this business you're in you know so yeah but now I think there's so many more routes for artists for comedians for writers performers you know playwrights to get their work seen and so, so you know Edinburgh isn't for you know it's if you've you, if you're a single parent, maybe you can't go up there for a month, you know, and bring your kids up. You know, there's, there are things that, you know, when you're younger and you're single that you don't notice that maybe there's a lot of people like you and a lot of who look like you and, you know, very middle class. And, but there's lots, I, I sort of, I'm talking around the houses. I think the great thing at the moment is the internet and is this access to so much more work and uh, art that we could ever have imagined, you know, like you can have a bad Edinburgh and still have an incredible you know that show a bad end of I mean like not a lot of people come to see your show or whatever yeah. and that sh- that used to be the end of that show but now that doesn't you know someone can tweet about it someone can say they saw your show someone with a big following or you can put a bit on YouTube and people are like this is really good actually you know you can find your audience and that's liberating and, and um and it's just that's exciting as well that we can all you, you know that people now want to see exactly what they want to see so someone you've never heard of or I've never heard of could be absolutely huge. I have millions and millions of followers, which should never used to be the case, you know, yeah. that, that, to that level, you know. And that's exciting that people get to, there's there's space for everyone, you know. There doesn't have to be like, this is what's in, this is what it, comedy is, is happening in comedy now. You go in certain areas and, you know, there's comedy, you can find your comedy at a mass scale, I think, you know. And there's less power in, it takes the power away from some of the gatekeepers, whether that be press or media up at the fringe or whether that be TV channels and film, you know, like it kind of means that it's the you, your ability to be seen, which is one of the beautiful things, I suppose, about the fringe, but then you need to be able to afford to get there to be seen in the first place, is the fact that you will see wild stuff. Absolutely. B- Bouncy Castle Hamlet. Bouncy Castle mm. Dracula is going on. It's not curated. It's the only festival that's, well, not the only, but the one that like Montreal or Melbourne, they've curated. Yeah. You know, you get invited over. So no matter what, like the worst you're going to see is middling. Whereas in Edinburgh, you can go and see a show that you're like, okay, this is happening, is it? And then you go and see another show that's someone you've never heard. You might have three people in. You think this is absolutely magnificent and they're going to win something this year. You know, like, and it's incredible. And But for me, my first Edinburgh was a tiny revolution. If we're talking about tiny... Because I had no awareness of it when I got there. It literally felt like, you know, like in the film, like from the 60s, when someone takes drugs for the first time and everything goes purple. It's like, (laughs) that's what, I've never taken drugs. But it was, you know, it was, that's what Edinburgh felt for me. I felt this kind of, 
world that I had missed, that I didn't even know existed, that I was like, oh, it felt like coming home, the good and the bad, and my people, everything. I had such a real kind of revolution getting to Edinburgh. That festival was, I remember thinking, this is, yeah, where I'm meant to be, for sure. For the first time in my life, I knew where I was meant to be, meant to be somewhere. Yeah, I didn't know it existed until I, like, maybe went and did the play, and I think I'd maybe started doing some open spots before that but didn't know Edinburgh was a thing or I'd heard of it but yeah um it it, it, like you say it's like kind of the turning up in Oz or whatever you know yeah it was overwhelming and all the comedy just you know the all the camaraderie and all just everyone and the noise and the smell and the city and the high ceilings of the flats and the love and the heartbreak and it's all there it's like you know and I'm so glad for it you know it just felt like and just watch it and talk about comedy relentlessly and learning the language of comedy and, you know, what makes a good show and what doesn't, you know, and of course it's subjective, but learning to engage in it, like in the, in the conversations about what you like and what you don't like at that level, you know, with people, it was, it was so invigorating. Like I just... Gives you energy, and de- doesn't devastating. it? Devastating and all of the feelings, it was just like, there's not one feeling that didn't come in hot. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> every feeling showed up like, eh, happy. <laughs> you know like devastated every day was just like you know the little hope horse that I call it that yeah. rides into town the day the nominations come out like you you go I don't care nah, but, uh, and then the little hope horse is like you're like no don't get on the hope horse don't get you know and it's so hard to try and it's like all of the stuff we've been talking about but you're exactly right it's condensed it's it's um it's like a montage in a film it is like a year in a a year and a month. Oh yeah, it's a like it's a lifetime, you know, it's a life in a month, you know, like it's got all of the beats of a great script. Do you know what I mean? Like there's the you know the beginning, the mid like, you know, the the hope, the despair, the hope, the love, you know, just so much of it is I'm very grateful that we have that here in you know in the UK and in Scotland because it is um nothing's perfect and there's you know it needs to be more inclusive and definitely more for working class and people of color and stuff like that it definitely needs to make sure that it you know improves that but as a festival as a whole the fact that you know it isn't curated and you don't have to ask anyone you know obviously you have to put the venues but you can go up there you know you don't have to be seen in the sort of in the same way that you do in melbourne or montreal is there a show that you saw at edinburgh in that first fringe that blew your mind so many, but if I'm going back, it would be Daniel Kitson, I think. It was a Daniel Kitson show. I guess it's just that it was so thoughtful and it combined raucous belly laughs with such precision introspection that I hadn't seen. I didn't think it was possible. I thought you always had to sacrifice one for the other, you know, that you had to sort of paint broadly to go big. And then if you went you know, very introspective and very new, very detailed um, observations to the point of, you know, that they would be smiles and wry, but it wasn't. It was a show that it was uh, really brilliantly smart, worn loosely, but yeah, full of heart. It was a real, I just hadn't seen him. I'd never heard of him, you know, so a lot of people had to, you know, I wasn't, I, I'd never seen him on TV or anything because he doesn't do TV, but it was a show that was, and you know, it was, Everyone, you know, in comedy was kits and kits and fever, and so um, yeah, I watched that Daniel Kitson show. Um, there's one 
one I remember. One of the things that sort of um, is always re- worth remembering about Kitson because it's seen it's he he's reviewed as you know like art his stand and I believe stand up is art you know and mm. he's often talked about in those kind of frames. But it's worth remembering that he came through as a club comic. Mm. That's how he the yeah. same as you same as me like he came through that and I think that's forgotten sometimes because I think sometimes club comedy is kind of like dismissed a bit or sneered at in that it's not and when you put when you put Daniel in a room you can see those chops that he can just absolutely just he came and did old rope one night and it was last minute I think I think you were like try Dan you know because our headliner had dropped out so no one in the crowd was there because it was like Kitson but he came in and he like surveyed the room and he was like oh yeah I've got a I got to work this. This is going to be, and like him enjoying it, going right gears in, and going. I can make any. It's not just a Kitson crowd. I have to make laugh. It's like you said, you didn't know anything about him and you loved it, but he has the ability to do that, and I think that's a, it's a great choice. Yeah, it's one I remember, and I saw you know amazing. I mean, I'm being, I'm probably you know forgetting so many amazing shows because my brain just is gone. Like. I can't remember a film I watched yesterday half the time. Um, but yeah, so, but that was just one I remember at the time hearing a lot about him up there thinking, oh, it's going to be having an idea about what it was and thinking it'll be, I'll enjoy it. But, um, but it was visceral. It was very visceral and belly laughy and smart. Thank you for coming on Tiny Revolutions, Roisin Connerty. You've been brilliant as always. Thank you for having me, Tiffany Stevenson, as always. you can listen to other programs from the bugle including the bugle the last post tiny revolutions and the gargle wherever you find your podcasts i'm andy bush i'm here to tell you about our weekly board games podcast that you might just love called bush's board game thing every week me brian and eloise get together sit around a table play a few board games and mainly just go off on massive tangents about life and stuff like that it's less about the minutiae of the board games themselves what we love is the fact that games bring people together and can spark conversation each week we have a terrible board game fact from brian which absolutely makes him ramble into the wall and one of you guys get in touch to pitch us a board game that hasn't been made yet Our favourite so far was uh, an extremely tired dad who came up with a board game about camping and going for a wee in a hedge. Bush's board game thing, give it a listen, it might just change your life. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 